Paul, we have an excellent guest today on The Modern White Man, a podcast where we discuss how to be a modern white man who is anti-racist, anti-sexist, and understands his role in creating equity. When we had Jared Carroll, author of A White Guy Confronting Racism, on as a guest in episode 26, he mentioned that Jill Nagel would be someone that we would really enjoy speaking with, and he was absolutely right. I am so grateful that Jared put us in contact with Jill. She is doing really great anti-racism work and her experience really comes out in this insightful conversation that we had with her. So Jill Nagel is a multi-published author and founder of Evolutionary Workplace. She thinks many more problems than we realize can be solved with real-time conversations. She works with anti-racist leaders and organizations using cognitive, somatic, and strategy-based tools to help them create better conversations, sharper perspectives, and more effective strategies that align their actions with their ideals. You know, I really got a lot out of this conversation, you know, especially how in her bio there, it mentions how so much can be solved with real-time conversations and we talked a lot about that. I think it's just, it, it's almost like simplistic on the, the surface, but so impactful, really, if you can have real-time conversations with folks and show compassion. You know, that was a theme that really came up in this as well, that I, I continue to find so helpful. And the way that Jill talked about how you can use disarming questions to really find common ground with folks in these conversations, you know, it was all just really great. And I also really took away that, you know, again, the, the importance of both having these, you know, conversations with people of color, right? And like doing collective action and learning from different lived experiences is so incredibly important. And the importance of having these spaces for us white folks to also kind of debrief and talk and really support one another in this work. It's so important to have both. And, you know, I really thought that this conversation with Jill, she embodied that, how having that space for, for us white folks that are working to be anti-racist and break down white supremacy, you know, how having support from one another is really important as well. It felt like a pinball during this conversation, like in a good way, just like getting bounced around to different feelings or thoughts or, you know, I went from laughing to feeling super challenged and I've went to the intellectual to the somatic and, 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 you know, going into my body. And we talked about leadership zooming out from a high level to zooming in and just kind of the conceptual to the practical. It was awesome. It was just kind of all over the place in a really good way and walked away with lots of really good ideas of how to approach conversations and challenging situations that I run into each day and feeling really rejuvenated in that way. And and again, as we've talked about with other guests who identify as white, just feeling connected to other white folks and that we're a part of a, a greater movement to really change the culture, if you will, of, of white folks here in this country in particular. It was a really inspiring conversation. Yes, I totally agree. It, it really was something that I'm excited for all you listeners to listen to. And you can find out more about Jill Nagel and her work at evolutionaryworkplace.com. And she's currently working on a book proposal for her book entitled Skin in the Game, 
how white people benefit from dismantling white supremacy, which we did talk about as well at the end of this conversation, which I uh, was one of my favorite parts of our conversation. As well. I just love that title. That's it's so good. Skin in the game. It's so good. It really is. <laughs> I, I like that a lot. Um, and the book, is, it's seeking representation in September of 2022. So we'll keep an eye out for when that releases and share that with you all. And as always, please reach out to us with questions, thoughts, feedback, or guest and or topic ideas at themodernwhiteman at gmail.com. You can also get looped into our newsletter list where we can share with you some things we're planning for the future that can help you on your journey to be anti-racist and inclusive. If you don't feel like emailing us directly, which I don't know why you wouldn't want to do that, you can always sign up for our newsletter on our website at www.themodernwhiteman.com. We'd love to hear from you through whichever channel you so choose. But without further ado, let's hop into this great conversation so you can hear it yourself. Here is the conversation with Jill Nagel. We are pleased to be joined by Jill Nagel. Jill, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. It really is our pleasure. You know, before you hopped on, Jill, we laid out your very impressive bio, and it's really inspiring to see your multidimensional approach to, as your organization, Evolutionary Workplace States, support the inner and outer work of dismantling white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And going through your work was almost a reminder to me how it takes an entire ecosystem of approaches and methods to really make transformational progress to be anti-racist. So we're really looking forward to having this conversation with you, and we really appreciate you joining us. And to start, Jill, can you tell us a bit about your journey and what led you to supporting the inner and outer work of dismantling white supremacy? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, I've been interested in inner worlds and interpersonal communication since I was really young. I remember being about eight years old and picking up this book on my parents' bookshelves. Uh, it was called Between Parent and Child by Chaim Gannat. And it's before your time. Um, and there's a there's a similar book out now called uh, How to Talk So Your Kids Will Listen and How to Listen So Your Kids Will Talk. Similar kind of thing. But this was the book of that you know, the 70s. And I was just amazed and elated by this kind of reflective dialogue that was in the book. Like, they had all these little vignettes, like the kid says, you know, but I don't want to eat this. And the parent says, wow, I'm hearing that you're feeling really just you don't like the spinach or whatever it was. And like, the parent was actually tuning into the kid. You didn't usually hear this type of thing <laughs> between most parents and child, not definitely not in my house. And so I got I, and the more I read it, the more excited I became. And I, and I took this book to my father and I tried to teach him how to talk to me. This did not go over very well. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, but it, it really it really kind of awakened me to the, the huge gulf between how most people talk to one another and what true communication really looks and feels like. Wow. I love that story. That is too cool. And, you know, Jill, I, I love how having those deep conversations seems to be such a, an important part of your work and in your bio, how you talk about how much we can solve with having conversations. And mm-hmm. one of the workshops that you offer that I saw is called white on white conversations, mm-hmm. where one can learn to have transformational conversations with people whose views on race are different than their own. And mm-hmm. the workshop mentions that 
if we re- refuse to engage with those other white people, we abdicate a vital use of our white privilege. We, you know, leaving people of other ethnic descents to potentially bear the brunt of that other people's unresolved racism. And I think this is so important and I'm excited to dig into this with you about that, you know, what these conversations can do. And not only do I think it's important, I think it's wanted. So I, I've been talking to a group of white men about their journeys to be inclusive leaders. And one of my surprises through that group is how much they want to learn to talk to other white people who say something racist or who mm-hmm. question the necessity of diversity, equity, and inclusion work, or who deny the everyday workings of racism. You know, they, they almost want to fast track ahead to just be like, okay, what do, how do I respond when mm-hmm. someone says this, right? How do I respond if someone says all lives matter or, or something mm-hmm. like that? So well, could you speak more to your white on white conversations workshop? You know, why is that so important? And what have you experienced as some of the biggest challenges when working with white people on this? Mm. Well, so I, I always love quoting um, Asia Davis of the Human Potential Project. She's a woman of African descent, and she and her partner, Molly Olapini, co-run um, a Facebook group called White People Doing Something, which last I checked had about 44,000 people in it. And uh, one of the things she says about this type of conversation is, you know, for the, to the white person who sort of wants to just unfriend and ignore or dismiss the other white people is one less racist in your life is not one less racist in my life. I ran for about a year and a half. I ran these um, white on white workshops and now I go I make myself available to organizations to go and talk to them. And to a person, everybody had a somatic or bodily response. And so what we did in those beginning workshop is workshops, we would, slow down that response. That's what we spend a lot of the time doing. And by slow down the response, I mean, literally like replay a, we'd we'd pick a, like a trigger phrase, like, um, well, you're the problem, Jill, because you're bringing up race and that's what's actually causing racism, right? Some version of this, probably you're both nodding, you probably heard some version of this. Um, Oh yeah. Yep. (laughs) It's a very common, you know, it's an expression in one of the mindsets that white supremacy produces in white people. And I think it's a coping mechanism because it's, it's really difficult to look at it so entrenched. And so we use that as a trigger phrase and then we slow down what happens in your body. Like some people are like, oh, my heart is racing, my throat is tightening, I just feel the surge of anger, I feel really sad, all kinds of things that we experience. Noticing that and practicing coming back to center so that we can actually create a response that could be transformative. Because if we're just reacting, we're not transforming anything. We're just entrenching, which is part of how white supremacy lives in our bodies, is that we so easily snap to polarization, unfriend them, do, you know, they're other, right? And so I would say, you know, one of the things you didn't list, but that's been really alive for me lately is framing how we look at this work. I'm kind of a philosopher in addition to you know, a somatic coach and, and a writer. And one of the, um, well, maybe it borders sort of philosophy and sociology, but one of the concepts that I've been working with and that I it is central to my book is to look at our membership in whiteness, if you will, as being part of a collective consciousness or an intersubjectivity. Like we're all actually related to each other in ways that may not be obvious. And when we 
disavow or disown another white person because they quote unquote are racist. We're maintaining that fractured white ego that perpetuates white supremacy. And I, I liken it to a dysfunctional family. So let's imagine you've got, say, mom and dad. Dad's an alcoholic. Nobody talks about it. Mom is heavily in denial, really codependent. The sister is a cheerleader, and her job in the family is to be really perky, keep everything light, and make everybody laugh. And lo and behold, the brother develops a drug problem. Okay. And then the brother becomes what's known in psychology as an identified patient. And that means that he is considered the one with the problem and the family's attention and energy all goes, to, oh, let's fix, let's call him Bob. Let's fix Bob's problem, send him to rehab. And now everybody, you know, the relatives are wondering how Bob is. Of course, nobody is talking about the fact that dad's alcoholism has been a secret, you know, since the kids were little. And so to step back and look at that, you might say that Bob is expressing the tsuris, that's the Yiddish word for pain and suffering. Bob is expressing the pain of the whole family. But if we don't look at it that way, then we're just focusing on Bob and his drug problem as if it somehow occurred in a vacuum. And that's something that we do in this culture. We look at ourselves and other people as if we somehow just landed here, right? But we aren't, and we didn't. And we came here through history. We came here through our families. And so when we look at, say, a Dylan Roof, who killed nine peaceful Bible-studying Black people in North Carolina, or Derek Chauvin, we all know who that is, we often think of them as, you know, what, what kind of monster must they be? What kind of person, you know, do they have to be to do that kind of violent act? But if we step back further, we can ask, what is this white body expressing for the collective white body that we we as a white collective are not dealing with. And I'm definitely not trying to absolve white murderers who kill black people from accountability. Um, but what I'm saying is let's look together at the entire system and how that system is creating and producing people who express things in those ways. For example, let's say, let's say I were one of those people and you had me on your talk show. Instead of pathologizing or condemning me, you might say, what happened to you? Um, that's something Oprah Winfrey says, you know, as we get more, as we get more literate and conversant about trauma and about the things that happen to people that hurt them. So then they go out and hurt other people. We start getting curious saying, what happened to you? How, what went into creating this? And I think a big thing is that we have not figured out how to really reckon with slavery by reckon. I don't mean admit that it happened but really look at how that impacted everybody from the creation of whiteness, which we still maintain today, to 250 years of legal rape, to the trauma that still plays out in black communities, to, you know, before that um, manifest destiny and the near decimation of indigenous populations. How do we reckon with that? How do we heal from that? And I think we're just beginning, some of us just beginning to get an inkling of what that might even look like. But I know that I got really big and really deep and really heavy. And I want to take it back to um, the question that you asked, Ken, about, you know, you're talking about some men in your men's group wanting a shortcut or something. And so, you know, when we do this, this really deep work of inquiring and being with what comes up in our bodies when somebody says, well, you know, you're really the problem or all lives matter or something like that. 
we do that. We, we create a shortcut. And that shortcut usually is something like put your feelings aside, you know, cock your head and lean in and look really interested and say, huh, that's interesting. Can you tell me more about that? And so we try doing that and we try doing that even when we're feeling really triggered. You know, and that's our little shortcut or go-to that we keep in our back pocket for when we can't manage to breathe and center. Because sometimes that's really hard. It takes a lot of repetition to lay down those kinds of neural pathways. So you can fake it. But sometimes that works just as well, if not better. Yeah, I think that's a form of, I guess, quote-unquote, traditional masculinity or toxic masculinity of wanting to, like, win a conversation, wanting to disprove someone and come out the victor, right? So what you're proposing sounds like something that kind of flies in the face of what we've been conditioned as men to do. And so I kind of wanted to ask a little bit more about that. You, you referenced something called toxic patriarchy mm-hmm. under the page talking about your white and white conversations. So I'm curious, since we're the modern white man, right, we also we understand there's there's dynamics that have to do with gender and the way that we navigate the world and navigate anti-racism. So could you talk a little bit more about like, what do you mean by toxic patriarchy and how does that you, you, you say on the website that it further fuels polarization. Can you talk a little bit more about how mm-hmm. it does that? Well, I think that the, this culture, men and therefore models of success, are trained to win. You know, And I, I prided myself when I was younger in kind of really mastering that, being able to win an argument, being able to talk circles around someone, I kind of get off on that. And now, even though I still have that kind of egoic drive sometimes, I'm much more interested in in connecting with people and creating compassion. I've learned so much on this journey that Paul and I have been on with this podcast and talking to our guests. And that is one of the biggest takeaways that I've had throughout this whole process is the importance of compassion. And as you were talking about those conversations and leaning in and the, the other word that we use all the time is bamboozled. Because we always say that, you know, we've all we've all been bamboozled, right? Like white folks, too, and white men, too. We've been bamboozled to have these these hierarchies and these these institutions and ideas of value. We're all victims to it in one way or another. And to recognize that and to have compassion and lean into these conversations seems to be a key to the, to this work. It's one of the biggest things that I've learned. Yeah. I love that. I just, I want to say the word cause it's fun to say bamboozled. Bamboozled. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Thinking about our collective bamboozlement. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. You know, and it's, it's so funny. I, I've been trying to have, you know, these white on white conversations, which is something I have all the time with, you know, this podcast and people know, know that I do this podcast. And so they like to challenge and, and ask. And I don't know, you know, I think sometimes challenge for sure, but sometimes it's it's really just the true questions and, and, and feeling open enough to ask me some of these questions, which I don't take for granted. But, you know, I, I'm still, I'll, I'll never be perfect. I'll always try to be, to be better. And I recently had a conversation that it kind of caught up my defensiveness. And it, one of the biggest things that made me think of that is when you mentioned, you know, if somebody says something like, bringing up race is, is the problem, you know, like talking about race so much is the problem. And it was something along those lines and it was kind of aggressive. And typically I try to practice equanimity, but my defensiveness kind of went up. And so I feel like to have those conversations and a lot of times requires a lot of practice and a lot of kind of self-awareness work 
How do you see that play in with your workshops? You know, how, what can people work on if it's, if it's like a long-term kind of process to be able to practice that compassion and equanimity and, and kind of keeping that defensiveness at bay in a short workshop, you know, or however long the process may be, like, what are some of the tips that you give to folks? Mm -hmm. Well, so just to give you an idea of how much I agree with you that this is a a tough process. And when we did our 22nd Century Leaders Program, which is a nine month program, we spent the first six months on that. Wow. Wow. I mean, not just that, but that was the, that was the sort of the backbone of it. And um, if I could distill it, into a simple phrase, and I will go beyond that too, but the simple phrase is to fine tune our awareness of the difference between presence and pattern, which is very similar to when you talk about what comes out of you, response rather than reaction. And of course, it's way easier said than done, right? But we have a whole bunch of tools to help you recognize when you're going into pattern your pattern might look different from his, might look different from mine. I really recommend the book, The Five Personality Patterns by Stephen Kessler. I do think personality patterns is a little bit of a misnomer because it's not about, you know, whether you're trustworthy or untrustworthy or cheerful or, you know, dour. It's more, it's rooted somewhat in the work of, of Wilhelm Reich and it looks at somatic patterns of attention. What happens when a stimulus hits your system? Do you go aggro? Do you hide out? Do you leave your body? Do you attend to the other person? Um, And we tend to, not everybody, but most of us tend to follow some basic patterns that determine what we do when we get unhinged or a little dysregulated, you know? When we can identify that and figure out what to do to bring ourselves back, we're so much more resourced and our work in this realm will be so much more successful. So, You know, white supremacy mythology lives in our bodies and braids with our trauma and attaches to our patterns. And so as soon as we get into it with someone, as soon as, you know, our hackles get raised, it's our patterns going back and forth, right? And then oftentimes further entrenching us. So if we could figure out how to come into presence, we might be able to have a more transformative conversation. That's super interesting. So it's the idea that the self-awareness to identify our own personal patterns That's part to responses. Of it. Okay. That's part of it. And some of it is embodied exercise. For example, I'll take people on a meditation to, to come into our core and figure out, uh, not figure out, sorry, experience ourselves in our own bubble without anything else. What is that actually like? And then to relate to somebody else in their own bubble. So if I'm over here in my bubble and I really have a good sense of who I am and where I end and you begin and where you end and begin. And it's really, to me, like a profound exercise in respect that I'm over here caring for myself and I get to engage with you. We get to find a place of resonance. I'm respecting your sovereignty. I'm not trying to force anything on you. Now, it gets really interesting when I start being able to look at other people and guess what patterns they're running, which gives me clues about how to approach them. Like, for example, somebody who's running what Stephen Kessler calls the enduring pattern or what Reich would call masochist. I don't really like those words. I call it the mountain pattern. Somebody's running a pattern where they're really like connected to the ground. And they were those people that just sort of seems like really steady. You couldn't knock them over and 
nothing really rattles them. They also might be really sensitive to feeling like somebody's trying to push them around or tell them what to do. So if I want to offer something or invite them into something, I'll sense into where their edge is and I will leave my suggestion at their edge. It won't come past that because I want them to, autonomy is huge for somebody running that pattern. They might not even be aware that they're, that they're running it. And I'm not going to tell them that, you know, by the way, because that's not, I don't, I might not even be right. It's not my job, but it's, it's a, it's a, a perception that I'll use. For example, I, um, I had a coworker who was clear to me was running that pattern. His desk was right in the middle of everything. So people were always coming up to him and he was a tech person. So they were always just kind of coming right into a space and asking for things. And he always, it, that's, I would always kind of made him go down even further into the ground. So when I would come up to his desk, I would stand about a yard away and I go like this and I pretend that I was knocking on his door. And he sort of came forward more when I did that. That's yeah, it's it's fascinating. And you know, the somatic experience is something that Ken and I have, I think, been exploring quite a bit on this podcast and mm -hmm. and something that has, I think for me personally been a challenge is getting out of my head and into my heart and into my body. And, you know, it, and as we talked about it in the intro, you know, you have this multidimensional approach to the work that draws on you know, it synthesizes cognitive, emotional, somatic, interpersonal, and energy-based methods. So, I'm, you know, we're really intrigued by the importance of that somatic method. Mm -hmm. And I think we've we've mentioned before that it seems like, and maybe this is untrue, but it seems like that's a little bit more challenging for men or cisgender men to 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 tap into somatics and emotion. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you mentioned that you can use somatic compassion and self-healing regulation to connect with ourselves and the person you know in front of us to create mm -hmm. that permanent transformation from the inside out can you talk more about what the somatic method is and why it's important yeah so i wouldn't claim permanent transformation i would say that we never really know what our effect on someone else is going to be sometimes a, a, like a little drive-by encounter could be really profound for them it could have reverberations down the line but so some of it has to do with what I what I mentioned a little earlier, finding your core and feeling into, you know, feeling your heart. So sometimes I'll, I'll have people do a really simple thing, like put a hand on their heart and a hand on their belly and breathe. And like, as you breathe into your heart, like feel the love that's there, feel how you are being of love. And then as you have your other hand on your belly, feel your power, feel literally the fire in your belly and anger and drive and all that stuff too. And as you breathe, let those balance out and invite your body to bring those into balance and to trust that you're not going to abandon your love to your power and you're not going to abandon your power to your love. Very simple way to kind of remember those essential parts of who you are. I think the, the use of the word power is, it's important and tricky, I feel like, because men, you know, white men desire power and want to defend our power. But I'm sure that's not exactly what you're referring to when you no. say power. It's that inner power and inner confidence. And yeah, can you say a little bit more about yeah. what you mean by power? So I'm, yeah, I'm going to sort of demonstrate. So if I am running a power over pattern at you, you might imagine a cobra kind of with the, <laughs> the hood coming out. I might say, what do you mean? That's not what you said a moment ago. This kind of gotcha. Like I might, I might be sarcastic. I might be calling you names overtly or covertly. Oh, well, that's not the kind of, you know, like it's a kind of a coming into your space and defining you, you know, so I'm leaving my bubble. On the other hand, if I say, 
ugh, I, I feel really uncomfortable hearing that. I'm saying, and, and in essence, a truer thing, because the, um, the power over coming at you was a strategy to manage my own discomfort. And if I get in touch with my own discomfort and I speak the truth about it, even power, I'd say, ugh, I just, I feel horrified hearing that. I'm staying in my space and I'm filling up my space with that really powerful emotion. I might say, my blood just boils hearing that. I feel so angry. But I'm not coming at you with it. I'm expressing the power and I'm filling my own space. Now, somebody else might say, you're attacking me, right? Because if they... If they're feeling this big already, then anything, anyone expressing their own power might appear to them, might ex feel to them like they're being attacked, even if they're not, right? And so that's where you can try switch gears and get curious, like, what's happening, you know? <laughs> yeah, no, that's great, because I think about, you know, curiosity, even that right there, that curiosity and, and allowing space for others, and even recognizing, I love how you say recognizing other people's sovereignty and their validity and, and affirming them as a human being, that's that's powerful, right? And it's powerful in the sense of opening up that possibility for connection. And this definition of power is something that you express fully and contain with an awareness of where you end and other people begin. You know, Jill, that's so interesting. And I think the idea of power is so important with this work and power links to leadership. And so I, I'd like to uh, almost transfer this idea of leadership because it's something also that Paul and I have talked quite a bit about. And I still frankly think a lot about how can in being inclusive and equitable and anti-racist, you know, what does leadership really look like? So it piqued my interest when I saw that one of your main offerings through Evolutionary Workplaces, uh, anti-racist leadership coaching. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think that that I talked about that white man group that I that I have. And, and that is just a theme that comes up so much mm -hmm. about how, how, how can we think about our role in this work and what's appropriate and like, can we be leaders? And if so, what does that look like? So I'm interested as to why you call it anti-racist leadership coaching. And as we discover our roles in anti-racism work as white folks and like with my you know group of white men working to be this, how should we think about being leaders? Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I think about it both very broadly and very narrowly. And the broad way is that I think that we're all leaders, even, in, even if, if you have an idea about how you want a conversation to go, that's leadership, right? To me, leadership is when you inspire someone else to your vision or to something that you're passionate about. So that's the very broad way of doing it is that we're all, you're, you both are here because you're taking leadership in this realm, right? It's not, you know, putting a, a leash on someone and leading them around usually, right? <laughs> and yeah, you, then, can't, or you can't order people to be compassionate or to be right. anti-racist, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. As, um, as an old nonviolent communication teacher of mine used to say, but it's not original to him, he would say, um, the flogging will continue until morale improves. That's good. That's very good. So that was a very broad way. We can all be leaders every time we do something that we're passionate about, that's inspiring other people, even in a single conversation, even a line of text on a LinkedIn thread or something, we're leading. So I think it's in a sense, it's a way of life. And then the very, the narrower version is, and this is something I really, really got deeply into in the program and we do in the coaching as well is 
that we all have our own unique fingerprint. Like not everybody, and I learned very early on, like I'm not a, a sit in and march kind of person. That's not where my strengths are. There's so many different archetypes, perhaps as many as there are people, but there are at least some like clustering around. For example, um, Max Dashu has a women's history archives. Lynn Burnett, cross-cultural solidarity. He's the person I appeared on the spillway with Jared Carroll. He is, he was a, a, um, a high school teacher and he realized that there were no good, people were asking, well, who were the white anti-racists in history? And he didn't have any examples. So he went out and created them, meaning he put together all this information about white anti-racists in history. So he's a historian and an archivist, and that's where his passion is. There are artists, there are facilitators, there are people who like to talk a lot, like me, right? <laughs> so no matter who you are, what your passion is, there are ways to take leadership. There's also like, if you are in the belly of the beast in corporate America, you can do things like put attention to your hiring practices. Look at the images and the language, even like the music that you're playing in the break room. There's so many ways to bring awareness of anti-racism to whatever it is you're doing. And that's also leadership. I almost feel like there needs to be some deconditioning with a lot of folks, and which is why I'm so happy you have a workshop on, on it, you know, talking about all the different ways leadership can look. Because I think for a lot of folks and myself included, mainly prior to when I really was digging into this work, leadership is it can be it's like a title it's almost like a level mm -hmm. it's something that you like work towards or it's something that you're at this certain level at an organization and you bring up corporate america and there's this very like capitalistic mindset that to be a leader it means that you have to like you you have to have a certain status almost and Pretend you have things figured out yeah I mean, totally never people. never be yeah, vulnerable. i forgot about all that yeah, never be vulnerable. Never, you know, yeah. admit that you may not know something. And, you know, I, I feel like it's just leadership evolves quite a bit. And it's almost like thinking about like the, you know, to be anti-racist, to be equitable, be inclusive, to be anti-sexist, to be all these things that one you know, can strive to be at organizations. You don't have to be at a certain level. You can do it today you, and it can be can different. Be, yeah. You can be behind the scenes. I mean, a lot of what I do is is very simple. For example, I'll ask a black leader if they know another black leader. If not, would they like an introduction? I think they'd really be able to help each other. Boom. You know, nobody knows that I did that. I don't need or want anyone to know. It's just, it's a way of showing up. And I happen to be good at connecting people. There's a group I'm in. It's a Facebook group that has had this image. It's a women's group, but it, it's for all women with this commonality. It has this image of a white woman. And I asked the leaders if they would consider changing it for something that was more multicultural. I'm like, oh, we don't know. So I wound up going in Canva and creating something and suggesting, actually, I need to follow up with that because it didn't change. <laughs> but um, so it's it's things like that. It's It's showing up and asking the questions and like, whatever it is you're good at, maybe, you know, maybe you're good at listening to people or asking questions or being of service in some way. I just, I think there's so many bazillions of things that we can do that are right in front of us. We, we might not even realize. So I, yeah, my definition of leadership is both very broad and that I think we're all doing leaderful things all the time and narrower in the sense that I encourage people to feel into where their gifts are and also to push themselves because all of us have 
you know, more conversations that we could be having that we aren't having. Well, I think it's so important to provide that broad spectrum of leadership because, you know, speaking for myself, but I think a lot of other men, like we think leadership means being in charge, right? Commanding, oh, okay. making yeah. decisions, being in the spotlight, right? It's just, I was thinking as you were talking, I was thinking about that and, and about how one of the questions that Ken and I was kind of the impetus of, in a lot of ways, the impetus of this podcast and what brought us together of these mixed messages that we would get of, mm. we want white folks or white men to step up and use their power and privilege, but we also want white folks or white men to step aside, right? So we got mm -hmm. caught, caught in this mixed messages of like, well, what is it, right? Love yeah. to hear, I'd love to get your reactions to that and your thoughts on that. A few different things, three different things are coming to mind. Let me see if I can say them all before I forget them. One of them is servant leadership. Another is attending to the perimeter. And the third is something an old friend said to me once, again, not original with him, but there's nothing so strong as true gentleness and nothing so gentle as true strength. Let me see if I can remember all of those. So servant leadership, uh, my, my partner has been in tech forever and as a manager, he sees it as his job not to take charge, but to enable the people on his team to do their best. What do they need? How can he serve them? Sometimes that is giving information, setting a vision, because nine times out of 10, he has way, way more experience, but he does that in, in the spirit of service. Another is something that my energy class teacher, and I, I'm not big on like a lot of masculine and feminine archetypes because I feel so gender fluid myself. Um, but this one thing really impressed me. And that was that she said, um, the masculine attends to the perimeter. And when I heard that, I thought about a lion, you know, guarding the territory so that the women, the females can go hunt or the babies stay safe and, and all of that sort of thing. And, you know, my son, who's 19, was being a counselor for kids for the first time at the family camp. He's now done it, you know, a couple summers. But he's like, oh my gosh, this is my first time with the kids. I'm feeling nervous. I don't know what to do. And I said to him, attend to the perimeter. He says, what do you mean? I said, make sure that the area that enclose, that's enclosing them is safe, that no one goes beyond it, nothing comes in to hurt them. And he see, that seemed to sort of settle in his body, like creating a space for someone. You don't have to tell anyone that you're doing it necessarily. I love that saying, there's nothing so strong as true gentleness and nothing so gentle as true strength. I think I could see how the culture really encourages bluster, you know, and pretense and a kind of a, a rigid, brittle, like a hard kind of strength. And I've seen incredibly strong men who are relaxed and vulnerable at the same time. And I think that a lot of the kind of the hard strength thing comes from trauma. I mean, if you've been beat up enough, if you've been shamed enough, if you've been hurt enough, you're going to carry that and it's going to feel brittle. Well, I'm so excited to, to jump to this next question because I get to use the word bamboozle again. <laughs> so you're, you're working on a book proposal for your book titled Skin in the Game, How White People Benefit from Dismantling White Supremacy. Just love that, right? Because that's just, it's so important and something I don't think can be reinforced enough that we as white people have been bamboozled and socialized in such a way that it's its difficult to see that dismantling white supremacy actually helps us white people. 
So we're very much looking forward to that and uh, excited to read the book down the line here. But can you explain more about your approach with this book and, yeah. and what's in it for us to dismantle yes. white supremacy? Absolutely. First, I want to say I just had this vision that the word bamboozle is going to be somehow part of a Ben and Jerry's flavor coming up before too long. Steve, oh. <laughs> you have to get back to the they, they would, of all the companies, they'd be into it. I think right. that's a good they would, call. Yeah, Bamboozled. they would be. Bamboozle Blueberry. Woo! I don't know if there anyone likes go. blueberry ice cream, but that's the first thing. Bamboozleberry. Bamboozleberry. Oh, you heard it here first. <laughs> Trademark that quick. Oh, my gosh. So, you know, I was, um, I've been, I was looking at some of the other books out there, like Heather McGee's Some of Us, and uh, oh my gosh, Jonathan Metzl's book, Dying for Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. So clearly not dying, you know, drug overdoses and not suffering high school dropouts and suicide rates and all that would be a good thing to not have. And there's been a lot of good work around how we would all be better off if society were more egalitarian. But the thing that I delve into that I haven't seen explicated elsewhere is that white supremacy mythology, meaning the mistaken notion that white people are superior that constructs so much of our culture, lives in white people's minds and bodies in ways that really hijack our brains. The most obvious, of course, is the overt white supremacist. And you can see how their um, their consciousness is really tied up around identifying as white and better than. They're really grappling with what um, what I call the broken promise of whiteness. It's, it's a little bit less obvious, but different, and I think also harmful in people who aren't as overt, you know, people who don't see color. Because if you notice, if you start talking to some people about race and they get to the la la la, you don't see color, you're the problem. It's like a part of their brain is shut down. They literally are incapable of facing this. And that's bound up with trauma and shame. And my sort of armchair theory about how this occurs is sort of back to the dysfunctional family in a way that we don't talk about it, but also that, you know, we are basically good people at heart, meaning for most of us, you know, if we step on somebody's sore foot accidentally, we're probably going to say, I'm sorry, and see if we can help them sit down or get some ice or something. And with white supremacy, we're born into the system. And it's like, it's like barbed wire grown into our skin. We benefit from the system. We can't turn around and rectify it tomorrow. You can't, I can't, no one can. It's, it's so in there. And so because it's in our skin and when I'm aware, if you bump up against it, it hurts. And we're like, wait, no, 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 not me. I'm, the, I'm a good white person. I'm good, right? People were, it's that, to me, that's basically what we're all screaming is, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. Don't blame me. Stop, stop. Because it's so tied up with shame and, and that's messed up. And I'm not saying, I'm not pointing fingers at people and saying, you're messed up and you're messed up. I'm saying this system has messed with us. We should all be unhappy with the system that has messed us up and work together to extricate ourselves from its harm. For someone who doesn't understand white supremacy, you know, you're having a conversation who, who hasn't, you know, for whatever reason, gotten to that understanding of that white supremacy exists. It's caused trauma. How do you explain to them that they've been traumatized by white supremacy? <laughs> I don't you know, know that I would I'm, leave with not, that. Yeah, well, I guess I, I don't mean that's our job to explain that, but how would you, I guess, show compassion? Maybe that's a better well, way so, of asking that question. Um, one, of the th one of the things we do in this work is teach people to gauge who and what they're dealing with. For example, 
one of the things I do on LinkedIn is I seek out people who seem to be coming from a more racially unaware place and I try to engage them. One person wouldn't engage anything I said. He just kept, you know, saying what he thought was wrong with me and how I was so this or that was classic example of a bad this or that. And he just wasn't engaging me at all. And so I'm like, there's no, I'm not going to get very far here today now. So gauging and discernment, you know, where is this person? What's their level of attachment to their views? Is there, is there a crack in the armor anywhere that I can work with? And I know, I know a lot of ways to show up and I really try to use my intuition. Like, how did you come to believe that? Or I try to say disarming things, you know, that um, will open up a place inside of them around this that maybe wasn't opened before. And, you know, and then another thing I gauge is some people, most people are going to die with their warped mindsets, you know, not of them. And it takes a lot to actually affect change. But I do think there are some almost magical disarming interventions that we can do that help people come to how this all start. Like what were some early, what was some of your early experiences around race? What did you learn? You know, Victor Lewis talks about this in his work of really tuning into how did your ideas first form? Because that's not what someone's expecting when they're coming out all, you know, defensive and arms up. They're expecting you to fight with them. And if you don't, you might actually get an in that's surprising. And some of it is hanging out over time. Like Daryl Davis, for example, if you look on YouTube and you enter Daryl, D-A-R-Y-L Davis, he is a jazz musician of African descent who had the simple question about the clan. How can somebody who doesn't even know me hate me? And so he went and he hung out with clan members, not arguing with them, not challenging them, not fighting them, just hanging out. And lo and behold, 200 and plus clan members turned in their robes because they could no longer abide the contradiction of this kind, beautiful black man hanging out with them and then spewing the hate that they did. I think that's really powerful to hang out with somebody and witness them without judgment. Wow, that's extremely powerful, that example. And I think that, you know, this theme of compassion that I mentioned keeps coming up. And I really appreciate you bringing up the idea of those disarming questions. I think that that is, that is like almost like the most impactful thing one can do. <laughs> That's like where my mind is at, at at this stage. And even thinking, you know, I mentioned that conversation I had that was kind of tough and I, you know, my defensiveness kicked in and I'm like, gosh, can you tell me that... more about that? Can you, I, I'm just really curious. Can we play with that a little bit here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was out with, I play hockey. <laughs> I've talked about that multiple times, like bamboozled on this podcast, because it's so interesting. It's like, if it's, a, it's a culture within hockey that's very masculine. It's very white. It's, it's kind of had like, I've experienced this my whole life. And so I was with a group of my hockey friends, you know, they know of the work I do and it hasn't, and it wasn't the first time that they kind of asked a few questions to me about, you know, is this work actually needed? And mm-hmm. as I was explaining the type of work that I was doing and how I'm mixing self-awareness work with, you know, and how that really can open up this world of collective action and creating relationships with other folks. I had two of them kind of at the same time. Well, one of them was like, oh, you know what? I, I don't agree with that. I don't think that's true. And at the same time that another one really made this face at me, like a very condescending face and that those things kind of triggered me. And he's like, no, I don't think it's true. I think all that's all that's important. All you have to do 
is hang out with a black person or hang out with a, a you know a person of color kind of like your experience or your example with that black man with the, the Ku Klux Klan like it, of course that's very important but mm-hmm. it, uh, you know, what I was arguing is that it's not everything. You have to do self-awareness work. You have to really understand the impacts of group membership. That takes a long time. It takes a long time to have these conversations. They're like, no, I don't think about that. And I just kind of snapped and I was like, mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? I've been doing this work for a long time. Okay. So I think I know what I'm talking about. I think that I've done a little bit more work than you all on this. So I think like, and then I, I, I automatically you know, I, I got into self-righteousness. I got yeah. into, I know what I'm talking. I'm so much smarter than you guys. I've read a hundred books, like, you know, without specifically saying the, you know, I've read a hundred books more than you, but it was really what I was implying. And so then they became defensive and it escalated. Luckily, like my, my good takeaway was that I'm, I've, I'm self-aware enough where I paused and I apologized. And I was like, gosh, I'm sorry, you guys that, that I got really defensive. I even like called it out. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I did that. And so I turned it around and we ended up having like a decent conversation and, and I, and I kept apologizing, but still it wasn't even close to as good as it could have been. And I think that if I had some of those disarming questions or a way to like really ask them more about that, or why do you say that? Or, you know, it, it would have been a much better process. Cause I, you know, I left and I obviously, with this work, we make mistakes all the time. And we, we always preach that and we learn from it. So I'm glad it happened, but I just, I did not feel good with myself about that. And it was just kind of a tough, a tough one. But so those disarming questions, I feel like are so important. Well, I, I really feel for you. And I'm curious if you, if in that moment, were you feeling alone? Oh yeah, it definitely. (laughs) It was like six guys on one. Right. And then that's why that like defensiveness kind of came up. (laughs) Yeah, I feel a lot of compassion for that. I mean, I feel like I spent so much, so many years feeling alone as a white person doing this work and trying to have conversations with other white people and just no one wanted to deal with it. It's hard. It can be, it can be hard work. As an yeah. outsider listening to that, and I've, I've been there too, and I've told, I've definitely responded the same way. But I, I, I as the, the privilege to be able to listen to that and as an outsider, what I think about is I, I, I feel like we're not as alone as we think. I think we tend to you know, go to that either or, like either they're on my side or they're not. Yeah. But I imagine a lot of those guys, you know, probably agreed. And, you know, you, you didn't know what everyone was thinking. You know, probably some of them partially agreed with you or really resonated with what you're saying. But maybe others, they were confused or interested or, you know, it's it, it speaks to that things are so much more dynamic than we think they are. But in that in the moment when we're feeling defensive, it, we go to that either or like mm-hmm. either they agree with me or they don't. I'm right? not safe but, here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. And that's, that's a good point. You know, a couple of the guys were trying to have my back and kind of like mm-hmm. starting to engage and, you know, it was like a back pedal. I think the other thing too, is like, I was, I'm friends with them. I know them. I don't think I would mm-hmm. snap at them. Like if I was, ha- you know, if I was doing a workshop, right. Like I wouldn't mm. snap at somebody like that, but I was just like, but we keep showing up and, and, um, mm, mm, mm. you know, it's tough. I'm, I'm one that overthinks things. <laughs> so like, I was like staying up all, of, of course, all night. I'm like, oh gosh, why did I, why, have, you know, but it's keep showing up, keep learning, you know, and that's, so I'm excited Jill to, to read your book. Cause I, I think that just even from this conversation that I know we're at time, but I, you know, I could feel like I could talk forever with you about this stuff so it's it's hard to, to end it you know? but i know <laughs> it's, 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 it's I feel really like, it's like 
the compelling issue of our time. And, you know, there are other compelling issues too, like climate change and oh God, the pollution. It feels like it all braids them together. This is the one that really has me kind of in its grip right now. Yeah, totally agree. So many good takeaways, Jill, from this conversation. I, I really appreciate it. And thank you for asking me to to open up and listen and, and show your compassion for me. You know, I feel like having, as we talk about too, having, you know, white folks kind of supporting each other is really important as well to be anti-racist and to keep showing up. So I appreciate that. It um, is. And I want to say something about that. Not so much out of defensiveness, but there might be a little bit of that here too. When I think as white people talking about how it's hard being white anti-racist, it's nothing like what it's like to be black or brown in this culture at all. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I do think it is important for white people to have a place to go to talk about and to get better at and to support each other in our white anti-racist work. Yes. So true. Thank you for calling that out too, because that's absolutely right. It's like when it gets hard, we're, we're just like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to take a day off of this. Right. Like that's not an option for, for black indigenous people of color. So that it's a privilege to be able to even do that. So thank you for that. But Jill, we are at time. Thank you so much for, for being with us and for all that you've given us and our listeners. We really appreciate it. We're very grateful and we're looking forward to your book. We'll be sure to share that once it's out with our listeners so that everyone can continue to, to learn from you. I have to come back then. That's right. Perfect. We yes, have a perfect excuse. <laughs> Thank you, Jill. Thanks a lot. Yeah, my mind is definitely still going 100 miles per hour after that conversation. It was, you know, at the end, it, it felt like it was really heating up too. I wanted it to be like a two hour conversation. There was a lot in that. You know, like you said in the intro, how your ideas were pinballing around in, in a good way. That's kind of what I feel like right now. My mind is just racing. Well, just, you know, emphasize the importance of coaching or just having someone in our corner to really look to see us objectively. I love how she talked about how important it is to see our patterns. And I, I think it's really challenging for us to see our own patterns unless we have someone else to reflect back. You know, it, it, it was uh appreciate you putting yourself out there and, and providing that example and but I think so many other people including myself including lots of listeners have been there and just really encourage everyone to think about what are your patterns you know what I'm thinking about what my patterns are when I run into something like that and really really good takeaways to disarm maybe not only our own other people but our own patterns too by asking questions and showing compassion that was one of my biggest takeaways have you ever heard of that before the patterns like not in that per- context yeah same yeah. i mean we talk about how we've learned so much from each guest and it's really true and i had yeah. i've never thought or heard about how each person has their own patterns of how they respond to different situations and that you can actually like recognize those and now immediately i want to mm-hmm. just dig into that it's super interesting to me yeah yeah, and immediately the, the pattern I thought of was like, I want to win a conversation. Like that is, that's a macro pattern. I'm sure I have like these micro patterns of how I go about doing that or how I navigate a conversation. But that macro pattern is immediately, like, I want to win this conversation. I want to prove this person wrong. I want them to get on my side. And it just was really refreshing for her to talk about how 
or at least my takeaway was that's not that's really never gonna work <laughs> for one yeah when you when you take that approach and then how curiosity and questions and showing kindness and compassion how that actually is leadership and how that's about inspiring people to to what i forget the word she used but to go with your vision right to come along with you in your vision and no one's going to go along with you when you're trying to put them in their place or proving them wrong. Like, you know, but people will come with you if you make them feel appreciated and valued and listened to. And that's just something I, I needed to hear. She mentioned the five personality patterns book. What do you think, Paul? A little uh, Ken and Paul book club? Should we just... I, I am. Yeah, absolutely. I am really interested in digging into that. And I think it could provide some some insights into those patterns. Um so I'm, I'm game. You can check out the video of this conversation and conversations with all of our guests on our YouTube channel called The Modern White Man, where you can see these full unedited conversations. Yes, that's right. We edit some of these podcasts. So you can go check those out if you're a visual person and subscribe, like, all that good stuff. Speaking of likes and subscribing, please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform. And please do give us a rating. Paul and I have been asking... How many? How many stars you asked? How many? Did someone ask that? I I think I heard that coming through. Five. Someone asked how many stars. It's a good give. question. Five That's would be would five. be the most preferred. If you are enjoying this, five stars really helps us get the word out there. So thank you in advance for that. And then as you know, that conversation, like we said, we have you can see Paul and I are still processing it in real time, which is why I like that we post our more thoughtful takeaways um, up in the blog section of our white website. So you can go check that out as well at www.themodernwhiteman.com and check out our takeaways from the conversation with Jill and conversations that we've had in the past as well. And on that website, you can sign up for our newsletter to be kept in the loop with all that we currently have going on and all that we'll have going on in the future. All right, everybody. Thank you so much as always for listening and we'll catch you next time. And until then, let's keep learning, stay humble and do the work.